Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. It was a crime that gripped the nation. A beautiful wife and mother was found bludgeoned to death in the garage of her suburban home on the outskirts of Toronto. It was July 1973, and a violent murder was not something that the Mississauga police were accustomed to dealing with. But their suspicions soon fell on the woman's husband, a wealthy Hungarian-Canadian developer named Peter Demeter. He was a man who had it all. Family, friends, success, and wealth. But he wanted more, and murder was much cheaper than divorce. Convicted of hiring a hitman to kill his wife, Peter Demeter was sentenced to life in prison in 1974. But being incarcerated was never an obstacle to Peter Demeter's evil plans. He continued his criminal scheming from behind bars. Arson, kidnapping, torture, and even murder. For those he wanted dead, he stopped at nothing to make it happen. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast series, I'm bringing you the true story of a man whose hatred knows no bounds. He has been called a master manipulator whose mind is a great reservoir of evil that contaminates everyone around him. And at 87 and crippled by disease, the Canadian Parole Board has refused to release him from prison, saying he still poses a significant threat to society. This is Unrepentant Killer, The Life and Crimes of Peter Demeter. Episode 2, Till Death Do Us Part. When we pulled in, our, our first officer, Bernie Burns, was standing in the driveway and Peter was with him. The garage door was uh, uh, opened and there was uh, blood running down the driveway. Mother found beaten to death in Mississauga read the shocking headline in the Toronto newspaper on the morning of Thursday, July 19, 1973. A young wife and mother had been brutally murdered in her own home 
on a secluded dead-end street. Her husband had come home from a shopping trip to find her lying in a pool of blood on the floor of their garage. The police were actively investigating the scene, but they had identified the victim. Her name was Christine Demeter. Christine Maria Ferrari was born in the city of Innsbruck, Austria in 1940. Long regarded as a European playground for downhill skiing and other winter sports, the atmosphere of the Alpine holiday destination had dramatically changed in a few years prior to Christine's birth. Annexed by Nazi Germany in 1938, Austria had been integrated into the Third Reich. As a key transportation hub, Innsbruck became a bombing target for Allied forces and suffered heavy damages during World War II. Christine was an only child born to a professional soccer player and his wife. Wanting a good education for their daughter, Christine was sent to a strict Catholic school. Christine didn't do particularly well in her studies, although she was an avid skier and a natural athlete like her father. But by age 16, Christine was restless. She left school and her parents to get married. And soon after, before she turned 17, Christine gave birth to a baby boy she named Martin. But being a young wife and mother was not quite as glamorous as the naive young woman envisioned it to be. Christine wanted to see the world. She had striking good looks and a passion for fashion. Two things she would exploit to pursue a career in modeling. It was the era of go-go boots and miniskirts, and at five foot nine, Christine looked great in both. In 1963, Christine asked for a divorce. She was moving on without her husband or her son. But while she dreamed of glamorous fashion shoots and Paris runways, Christine's modeling career never really took off. And she soon found herself supplementing her occasional modeling gigs with waitressing jobs. Still, her beauty did attract influential men and she was soon dating famous German photographer Gunther Sachs, who would later marry film star Bridget Bardot. Finally, she was living the lifestyle she had dreamed of, jet-setting across Europe and attending parties with the rich and famous. By the time she turned 26, Christine was dating Austrian film producer Franz Antel and getting small roles in his films. On set one day, Christine was introduced to a handsome Hungarian visiting from Canada. His name was Peter Demeter. As the sun rose on Thursday, July 19th, and shimmered off the clear pool water in the backyard of 1437 Dundas Crescent, the atmosphere inside the house was much different than it had been the previous morning. The beautiful homeowner wasn't there to make breakfast for her house guests. And the Demeter's daughter, Andrea, had been taken away to stay with Peter's cousin, Stephen, and his wife. Outside the suburban home, half a dozen Mississauga police cars filled the circular driveway, 
while news vans and their crews were setting up on the street. Eighteen detectives had already been assigned to the case. They had searched the neighborhood and the heavily wooded ravine during the night. But with the light of a new day, they were back again to continue a grid search of the property. And now, they had Ontario Provincial Police tracking dogs with them. Leading the investigation was William Bill Taggart, Superintendent of Criminal Investigations for the Mississauga Police. Taggart was due to take a much-needed vacation the following week, but he had a funny feeling his holiday was going to be put on hold. This was one of the most brutal murders Mississauga had experienced in years, and the tight-knit community was already panicking that there was a vicious killer in their midst. Taggart wasn't telling the press much, but he did say that Christine may have surprised someone in the garage trying to steal the Cadillac. It looked like someone had snuck up behind her and attacked her with a heavy object like a tire iron, but no weapon had been found at the scene. The detective added that there did not appear to be any sign of a sexual assault, but an autopsy would be performed later that day. The police were canvassing the neighborhood, and news reporters were knocking on neighbors' doors to ask if they had seen or heard anything the night before. Peter Demeter, the victim's husband, wasn't talking to the press, but a Toronto Star photographer had managed to snap a picture of him in front of the house. A well-dressed Peter was standing in his driveway, holding a leash in his left hand. He was taking Beelzebub, the dog, for a walk. Peter loved dogs. He'd had them growing up in Budapest, and he often said he cared more for his canine companions than people. Peter was born in the Hungarian capital on April 19, 1933, into an upper-middle-class family. His father was the managing director of a multinational insurance company, which provided Peter and his older brother a life of privilege, including being driven to a private school in a chauffeur-driven Mercedes every day. As the youngest son born to middle-aged parents, Peter was spoiled and indulged. But his sheltered world collapsed when on January 2, 1945, during heavy Russian bombardment of the Nazi-occupied city, a stray shell hit and destroyed the Demeter's luxurious apartment building. The eight-story building collapsed, and two days later, rescuers dug out 23 survivors, including Peter and his mother. His father was among the nearly 400 dead. And as the Russian siege continued and the Nazis refused to give up their defensive positions, Peter's 21-year-old brother was killed in action. By age 12, Peter was alone with his mother in a destroyed city. For those who had survived the bombings and Russian invasion, thousands more died from starvation and the cold. And for the next several years, as Budapest slowly emerged from the war, Peter and his mother struggled to make ends meet. Peter did well academically, and after high school, he dreamed of training to be an actor 
at the Budapest Academy of Theatrical Arts, but his aristocratic family background worked against him, and in 1953, he was expelled from the school as an anti-communist. He eventually got a job as a truck driver, but by age 21, he was facing compulsory military service. And because of his upper-class family background, he would have to serve his time in a special forced labor unit. Peter decided to escape to the West, and in December 1954, he and two friends risked their lives to sneak into Vienna, Austria. The young Hungarians were put into one of the many refugee camps, but Peter was eventually able to get himself out of the camp and working. He spoke German well and had some training in journalism, so he managed to get a job at a radio station called Radio Free Europe, where he interviewed other refugees and reported on life behind the Iron Curtain. It was during this time that he met another Hungarian refugee named Chaba Szilagyi. The two men would develop a strong friendship, and years later, Peter would invite the younger Hungarian to join him in Canada, a decision that Peter would come to deeply regret. By the time he was 23, Peter had developed an interest in business and wanted to explore new opportunities. He had relatives in Canada, so in 1956, he arrived in Toronto with $8 in his pocket and unable to speak English. He found it hard to adjust to Canadian ways, and four months later, he returned to Austria to care for his ailing mother. In 1957, Peter flew back to Toronto, this time determined to make a go of it. He took any job he could find to make ends meet and saved every penny. Peter was extremely frugal and didn't indulge in luxuries for himself. He eventually got his real estate license and turned to other Hungarian immigrants to make his first few home sales. Finally, in 1962, he registered Eden Gardens Limited to develop his first property, an apartment building in Toronto's West End. The same year, his mother died alone in Austria. Over the next few years, Peter continued to work hard. He was finally on his way to becoming the businessman and entrepreneur he dreamed of being. But there were already some questions swirling over his financial dealings. Now that the young developer had some money in his pocket, he was able to return to Austria on holiday. He was the successful Hungarian refugee who had made a name for himself in North America. Women began to take notice of the handsome property developer. And it was at a party in Vienna in 1965 that Peter met a young woman named Marina Hunt. He fell hard for the Austrian beauty. She was tall, blonde, and completely unattainable, just the type of woman Peter was attracted to. His obsession with her would last for years and would eventually lead to deadly consequences. Shortly after 11 a.m. on the morning of Thursday, July 19, 1973, Peter was asked to accompany the police to the Mississauga Hospital to identify his wife's body. 
he wasn't happy about the request because the police had told him that formal identification would likely not be required since he had already identified Christine in the garage. But he would do what they asked. Christine's body had been removed from the garage the night before while Peter was being interviewed at the police station. Her well-manicured hands and feet had been bagged in protective plastic to protect any potential evidence. And her well-tanned body had been zipped into a clear plastic body pouch. A Mississauga police officer had stood guard all night outside the refrigerated room where she lay on a stretcher. The next morning when Peter Demeter entered the hospital morgue, he looked at the naked, bruised corpse on the autopsy table and said, matter-of-factly, she is very much my wife, Christine. He then noticed the name tag on the pathologist's lab coat. Dr. John Feketa was a fellow Hungarian. Ignoring the police officers, Peter addressed the doctor directly in Hungarian. He wanted to know if his wife had died from an accident or homicide. He then informed the doctor that he and Christine had sex on the morning of her death, and then joked that as her husband, he had license to do that. The doctor was not impressed by Peter's morbid humor. Dr. Feketa was not prepared to give Peter Demeter any information about his wife's cause of death, but he knew for certain that she had not died from an accidental fall in the garage. Christine's death had been caused by at least seven separate blows to the head, administered by some kind of blunt object. Her skull had been crushed. She had also suffered a deep gash to her left thumb, likely sustained from trying to protect herself. Dr. Feketa ruled Christine Demeter's death a homicide. Less than 24 hours after Christine's body was found in the garage of her home, the Mississauga police informed the press that they had come up with no clues and no motive for the murder of the young wife and mother. Christine had not been beaten or sexually assaulted. They hadn't found a murder weapon and there were no signs of forcible entry or robbery at the home. In fact, the victim's husband had confirmed that no valuables had been stolen from the property. The Mississauga Police Commission announced they were offering a $3,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest of the person or persons responsible for Christine Demeter's murder. Peter Demeter then added $10,000 to the reward money. But despite Peter Demeter's outward appearance of wanting his wife's killer caught, his private actions were beginning to display a more defensive position. In fact, the day after Christine's murder, Peter was already meeting with lawyers in his home. The Pomerant, Pomerant, and Greenspan law offices were located in the prestigious Toronto Dominion Tower at the corner of Bay and Wellington in the city's financial district. Joseph Pomerant was a prominent criminal lawyer who employed his own investigator, drove expensive cars, and charged high fees. To Demeter, who liked mystery novels, Pomerant exuded the air of a Perry Mason archetype. 
Since opening his legal practice in 1959, Pomerant had lost only one murder case. His younger partner and second cousin, Eddie Greenspan, had been called to the Ontario Bar in 1970 after graduating from Osgoode Hall Law School in 1968. Peter contacting a criminal law firm seemed highly premature. Even the lawyers weren't sure why they had been summoned to the house on Dundas Crescent, only the day after their potential client's wife had died in the garage. He hadn't been accused of anything by the police, and he had a solid alibi. But they would soon learn that there were other mitigating factors that might put Peter Demeter at the top of the suspect list. It turned out that Peter had three compelling motives for wanting his wife dead. First, he stood to benefit from a large life insurance policy worth over $1 million. Second, the Demeter's marriage was troubled. And third, Peter had a mistress. Just recently, he had rekindled his love affair with Marina Hunt, the Austrian beauty he had met at a party in 1965. And just a few weeks before Christine's death, Marina had flown to Canada, where she and Peter had spent a romantic week in Quebec. They had discussed Peter getting a divorce, and Marina already had a plane ticket to return to Canada on July 26th. But now the lovers' reunion just might have to be put on hold. At the end of the first meeting with the criminal lawyers he had summoned to his house the day after Christine had been murdered, Peter Demeter handed Joe Pomerant a retainer for $15,000. In return, Joe later said he offered Peter $15,000 worth of advice. Say nothing to anyone. Pomerant's advice was indeed worth every penny, but Peter Demeter was not the kind of man who generally listened to anyone. And he had already talked too much. Peter had told the police that his marriage was on the rocks and that he and Christine had a $1 million life insurance policy on each other. But he had failed to mention the mistress. The police had learned that important piece of information from the Demeter's neighbor. Christine had complained only a few weeks earlier to her neighbor, Joan Tennant, that Peter had been unfaithful and she had found love letters between him and his mistress. Apparently, Christine had already met with a lawyer to discuss her legal rights in case of a divorce. She wanted to make sure she would get their daughter, Andrea. But she also confided to another friend that Peter would never divorce her. She knew too much about his shady business dealings. They're going to get rid of me, she cried to her friend. When Detective Superintendent Bill Taggart learned about Christine's emotional admissions to the neighbor and her friend, he knew that they weren't looking for a random intruder or assailant. The person responsible for Christine's brutal death was much closer to home. So less than 36 hours after Christine's death, Taggart had a wiretap placed on Peter Demeter's phone. Taggart wanted to know who he was talking to and what he had to say. 
and at the time, regulations around electronic surveillance were fairly lax in Canada. So Taggart didn't need to apply for a court order to begin the wiretaps. Peter Demeter was now the number one suspect in the murder of his wife. And with his every call now being secretly recorded, Peter Demeter continued to defy his lawyer's advice and talk to everyone about the murder and the police investigation. Naturally, he maintained his innocence and complained that the police were wasting valuable time searching his house and interviewing his friends when the real killer was getting further away with each passing day. But the more Demeter talked, the more convinced Taggart became of his guilt. Then, just a few days after the murder, Peter Demeter called the police to tell them he had received a threatening call from an unknown man who, speaking in a foreign accent, said, Your daughter is next. While reporting the call, Demeter casually asked if his phone line was tapped. The police assured him it wasn't. Of course, the detectives had been listening in, and Peter Demeter had not received any such call. But on the same day that Peter was reporting the fake threat against his family, a call had come into the police station that would give Taggart and his team of detectives a huge break in the case. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Rita Jeffries barely knew the Demeters, but she had dated a close friend of Peter's. When she saw the newspaper headlines about Christine's brutal murder, she remembered a strange conversation she'd had with her then-boyfriend about the couple. 
Over drinks one night, her boyfriend bragged to her that he could make a lot of money if he helped his rich friend, Peter Demeter, kill his wife. Her boyfriend's name was Chaba Selagi. Chaba Selagi was the fellow Hungarian refugee that Peter had taken under his wing in Vienna in 1954. Chaba was the son of an ex-Hungarian diplomat and he looked up to Peter, who was six years older. The two men had stayed in touch, and while Peter's career and financial status improved over the years, Chaba's prospects never really materialized. So in 1969, Peter invited Chaba to move to Canada. For the next 18 months, Chaba lived with the Demeters. And while the arrangement seemed to suit Peter, Christine, and Chaba for a while, the relationship eventually became strained and Chaba moved out. Over the next two years, Chaba and Peter drifted apart. Peter was becoming a successful property developer while Chaba was working at a pizza shop. But despite their differences, Peter trusted Chaba and would turn to his old friend to unload his secrets or enlist his help with some of his dubious real estate deals. Chaba was grateful to Peter and usually went along with his various schemes, but there was one thing he wasn't prepared to do for his friend Peter. At 4.30 p.m. on Friday, July 20th, the Mississauga police arrived at the Mr. Pizza location where Chaba Salage worked. His old girlfriend, Rita Jeffries, had contacted the police to report that Chaba had once told her that Peter Demeter had asked him to murder his wife. Former primary investigator, Barry King. We were working at night, um, probably about 8 o'clock at night, and the phone rings at the detective office, and I answer, and it's a, a, a young lady, and she's saying, you know, this this murder out there in Mississauga, yes, it's all. My boyfriend was offered to to do that job uh, for a, for a sum of money, and she says, and uh, I stopped going with him because it was too dramatic. You know the way he uh, he talks and lives, and and he's Hungarian. We ended up took probably four hours on the phone to get her to tell us where he lived and what his name was. And we said thank you, and we were getting ready to head out. And then she calls back and she says, I guess I should tell you. He's working at the pizza place on DuPont. Now the police wanted to talk to Chava Salagi. And it didn't take long for the fellow Hungarian to flip on his friend Peter. He got it. It's just a bundle of nerves. We got him into the the station, and I guess it was probably about midnight, and uh, he just decided he was going to talk. What he admitted to the police was almost unbelievable. But in a signed statement, Chaba told them of a series of bizarre plots by Demeter to stage the accidental death of his wife. According to the younger Hungarian, Peter had originally broached the idea of Christine's demise in 1968, less than a year after their marriage. And over the years that followed, he would continue to bring up the subject. I guess I wrote out... Uh, 19 different methods 
One plot involved tampering with the underwater wiring in their backyard swimming pool, so Christine would be electrocuted during one of her daily swims. Another scheme involved staging a car accident by cutting the brakes on her Mercedes. When neither of those plans materialized, Peter suggested staging a foiled break-in at their home. Chaba was to sneak into the house with a gun, give it to Peter, who would shoot Christine, and then Chaba would shoot Peter in a non-life-threatening manner. Still, another plot was to lure Christine to one of Peter's construction sites, hit her over the head, and push her down a flight of stairs so it looked like an accident. Chaba told the police that he would reject every scheme Peter came up with in an attempt to keep Peter from initiating any of his plans. Chaba admitted he cared deeply for Christine. But for some inexplicable reason, he never warned her of her husband's deadly intentions. Chaba then informed the police that on July 16th, two days before her death, Peter had asked Christine to meet him at one of his developments on Dawes Road. According to Chaba, Peter had hired a hitman who was waiting for Christine at the address. But when Christine showed up with Chaba's new girlfriend, who was the Demeter's former maid, the hired killer didn't go through with his task. He'd been hired to kill one person for 10000 not two. Peter was angry and blamed the botch hit on Chaba for not keeping his girlfriend away. Detective Superintendent Bill Taggart could not believe what he was hearing. But if what Chaba Salage was saying was true, the police had their murderer. To be sure, the police asked Chaba to take not one, but two separate lie detector tests, both of which he passed. Then they asked Chaba to become a police informant. He would be outfitted with a secret body pack to record conversations between himself and Peter. The police needed to get Peter on tape, confessing to hiring a hitman to kill his wife. And the only person who was going to get him to admit it was his best friend and confidant, Chaba Salage. Christine Demeter had always been conscientious about her looks. She worked hard to maintain her perfect model's figure and kept her soft skin well tanned. While she sometimes fretted about the odd wrinkle or imperfection, she knew that at 33, she could still turn every man's head when she walked into a room. Now, she lay inside a closed casket at the Skinner and Middlebrook Funeral Home, four days after she had taken her last breath. A somber Peter Demeter welcomed friends and family into the Mississauga Funeral Chapel as they came to pay their respects on that Sunday evening. Christine had been well-liked, and there were many mourners to greet. But before any friends or family had arrived, there had already been other visitors to the funeral home former Mississauga detective, Barry King. I used to be in the funeral business before. And so I knew the funeral directors down there. What we wanted to know is everybody that sent any any cards or uh, flowers or things like that. So 
so they let us in that night, the, the night before the funeral. And we took all the cards and photocopied them and put them back on. So we knew everybody that was part of the connection. When Peter's good friend, Chaba Salage, arrived at the funeral home, Peter excused himself from the other guests to step outside to talk to him. Before the visitation, Chaba had contacted Peter to tell him that the police were asking him a lot of questions and they had even searched his apartment. They suspected he was involved in Christine's murder and even wanted him to take a lie detector test. Chaba said he was very nervous and he wanted Peter's advice. And of course, Peter had all the answers. He said it would not be difficult to outsmart the Mississauga police. Chaba was to play dumb, say nothing, and never submit to a lie detector test. Chaba tried to press Peter further, and while Peter didn't come right out and admit a murder plot, his statements were definitely suspicious. The two men spoke for several more minutes in Hungarian before ending their clandestine conversation. Peter trusted Chaba and knew his friend would stand by him. But heading back into the funeral home, Peter failed to notice the nondescript delivery van in the parking lot. Little did he know that two detectives, including one who spoke Hungarian, were sitting in that van recording everything he had just said. Barry King recalls their covert surveillance operation. And we had a vehicle, a, a surveillance vehicle across the street in a, in a big parking lot. They had a, a large uh, camera and, uh, and voice recording system. We caught some of that on tape. Peter came out because Chubba was out having a cigarette. Peter comes out and uh, Chubba had the nerve to say to him, you know, after Peter's looking at him, he says, uh, uh, what are you telling them? You know, what are you saying to them? And he says, look, Peter, you know, there's only two people that know you and the person that did it, and it was not me, you know? And so that was one thing that gave us a little bit of assurance for, uh, for Chubba. Peter would still play him. He still, he still figured that he he had one-upmanship on almost anybody. On Monday, July 22nd, Christine Demeter was laid to rest. And over the next few weeks, Peter Demeter continued to meet with his good friend, Chaba Salage, oblivious to the fact that all of their conversations were being recorded. Chaba continued to feed Peter misinformation about the police investigation and Peter kept talking and talking. While not admitting to knowing his wife's assassin, he made a veiled reference to having a few bones to pick with him and wanting to do him in personally. You see, Peter was upset that the killer had hit Christine so many times in the head that no one believed it was an accident. According to Peter, the hired hitman had fucked up the job. At 7 a.m. on Friday, August 17th, almost one month to the day that Christine had died, Peter Demeter was disturbed 
by a loud knocking at the front door of his suburban Dundas Crescent home. He answered the door wearing brown pajamas and holding his dog, Beezlebub. He wasn't surprised to see who was standing there. It was Superintendent William Taggart and Detective Sergeant Chris O'Toole from the Mississauga Police. I have been expecting you, gentlemen, said Peter calmly. The two policemen advised him he was under arrest for the murder of his wife, Christine Demeter. Told to get dressed, Peter chose a dark business suit for the occasion. He was then handcuffed and taken into custody. When does the beating begin? asked Demeter when he was put in an interrogation room at the police station. The detectives didn't appreciate Demeter's twisted sense of humor and quickly had him transferred to a jail cell. For a man used to the finer things in life, Peter Demeter would find his new accommodations, the old Brampton prison, less than satisfactory. For Taggart and O'Toole, the arrest was a culmination of an intense around-the-clock investigation. While they had suspected Peter very early on in the investigation, he did have an airtight alibi on the night of Christine's murder. But with what they heard on the wiretap and during his conversations with Chaba Salagi, they were confident that they had enough evidence to prove he had hired someone to kill his wife. Taggart knew that Peter Demeter had planned Christine's murder. He was a manipulator, a puppet master who had someone else do his dirty work for him. Now, they just needed to find the puppet. Following the arrest, the police announced to the media they were continuing their investigation and were still seeking another party or parties involved in the murder case. When news of Peter's arrest hit his Bay Street lawyer's office, Pomerant and Greenspan felt the Mississauga police had jumped the gun. As far as they knew, the police had no real evidence against their client, and the skilled criminal lawyers knew that a man could not be found guilty based on motive alone. But the case was getting a lot of media attention, and it looked like the local community had already decided on Peter's guilt. The press was portraying him as a hard, unemotional man, and images of him walking his dog the day after the murder of his wife had certainly not earned him any sympathy in the public eye. Five days after his arrest, a bail hearing was conducted at Osgood Hall in Toronto. Demeter was granted bail for $75,000 and he had to surrender his passport. He was allowed to return to the comforts of his suburban home, but he would have to report to the Mississauga police once a week. Pomeran and Greenspan were surprised that the prosecution had not resisted Peter's bail, and they were right to suspect. The Crown and the police knew that the best evidence they had so far had come from Peter himself, and therefore they needed him out of a jail cell and free to keep talking. His home phone was still bugged, and he still didn't know that his best friend Chaba Silage was recording all of their conversations. Given enough rope, they hoped Peter Demeter would hang himself. As for the man who had just been charged with his wife's murder, 
Peter was anxious to get on with his business dealings and former lifestyle. As far as he was concerned, the bungling Mississauga police, led by Bill Taggart, whom he affectionately dubbed Columbo, after the popular TV character, had nothing on him and were a nuisance. But, with a murder charge and looming trial, Peter soon found that many of his former friends and business associates had distanced themselves from him. Even the cleaning lady had left. He was now spending his days consulting with his lawyers and evenings at his cousin Stephen's house, where he would spend time with his three-year-old daughter, Andrea. At night, he would return to Dundas Crescent alone to sleep in the house where his wife had been brutally murdered. His only companion, Beezlebub the Spaniel. On the next episode of Unrepentant Killer, The Life and Crimes of Peter Demeter. While the police continue to record every conversation Peter Demeter has, will the tapes actually provide strong enough evidence to use against him? Peter and Chuba would, would chat a lot about different things, and the, the police had him wired. So, but Peter would sort of insist on talking in Hungarian because he thought if the police ever managed to hear anything, they uh, wouldn't be able to understand it. Again, he thought they were country cops with no resources, right? Uh, but in fact, and this is, again, another irony, the head of the police intelligence squad was Joe Turdick, who was Hungarian, Canadian-Hungarian. What are the odds of that happening, right? And when the Peter Demeter murder trial finally begins, what other dirty little secrets will be revealed about Peter, his wife Christine, and their doomed marriage? Well, I remember at one point in the trial, this guy uh, got up and he was, um, I think his name was Ferenc Stark or something like that. He was saying that Christine, I think he was saying, I'd like to check this, but I think he was saying that Christine had tried to hire him to murder Peter, that was, that was one of the, you know, the things that was supposedly going around that she'd also tried to kill him. Unrepentant Killer the Life and Crimes of Peter Demeter is written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. A special thank you to Jim Bailey and Barry King. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. 
Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.